How you doing, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the John Riley Project. And boy, I'm just so happy to have as my guest this evening, San Diego Hall of Fame broadcaster, Ted Leitner. How you doing? John, good. Good to see you. Good boy, to see you. It's great. I mean, I, you know, hooking up with our friend Jerry, he connected me to you. And just thanks for coming by, you know, visiting the podcast studio. No, it's great because having done so many things in the past in radio and television, and, and broadcasting has changed so much, and all the big companies that have bought out 19 million stations, and uh, the podcasts are where you can go and chat and talk and, and do your stuff, and there's so much of that and so little of actual radio anymore. I don't know where it's heading. I guess it'll be on your phone or embedded in your brain years mm-hmm. from now in a computer chip. I don't know, but podcasts have become fun for me to reminisce and like an old man, like an old man. Yes, and back then it was this way, and what was the thing? Carvey. It was that way back when we were young and we liked it. Yeah. We liked it. We used to go to the movies. It was two bits. And exactly. It was for a double feature. We walked 10 miles to school <laughs> in the snow with no shoes and we liked it. Yeah, we did. So this this is great. Thanks for coming. Sure. And I, you know, I was reading your book here, Ted Talks, and boy, this is just fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, just so many wonderful stories, just you know, walking down memory lane with you. <laughs> I mean, there's so many different directions we can go. but I know. Because I've gone in many different directions. Well, let's start off with, to me, which is so impressive, is that you're a recent inductee into the San Diego Padres Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. How's that feel? It is the biggest professional honor of my life. And uh, I am in the uh, Southern California Jewish Hall of Fame. I am in, uh, I was proposed, had been proposed for the Oklahoma State Sports Hall of Fame because I went there and I become a, I guess, a semi-successful graduate, things like that. And my high school and things like, but the, the Padres, after 41 years, that's, you know, for great players or contributors or owners or whomever, that's not for many broadcasters. And all through the years, I would get those questions, especially from fans and sports writers, why are you not in the Padre Hall of Fame? And I would tell them, well, there's only one broadcaster in there. And if that's the index, I don't measure up to that. Sherry Coleman, for heaven's sakes. Right. This was a war hero. This was everybody's uncle. You know, this Uncle Teddy thing was really cute and, and lovely, but he was everybody's uncle or grandfather. And they loved him like maybe no player or executive or owner or what have you in the history of the San Diego market as a sports market. So if I don't measure up to that, and I don't because I'm not that popular, and I don't go in, then I've had 41 years of broadcasting, not too many great teams, average teams, but I did it in Major League Baseball with wonderful people. And and I honestly gave that answer. I wasn't being Mr. Humble. I've never been accused of being Mr. Humble. But I really meant that if Jerry's the end, I I do not measure up. And for the Padres to do it anyway and to put me in is one of the great honors of my life. And I will thank them for the rest of my life, as will my family. Yeah, I mean, what a, what a great honor for you. But, you know, we all love you here in San Diego. We all <laughs> follow the Padres. We followed you. You've been like a, like a family member for us for like 40 years. And that's, and that's the thing I didn't appreciate and understand about Jerry, who had been there so long, and, and the comments that he would get. You know, Jerry, I listened to you early on and, and with, my, with my dad, and he's gone now. And I hear you and I think of you. And all of that stuff that Jerry, I heard with him, being with him, traveling with him, so forth. I got late in my life, in my last whatever 10 years with the ball club. 
And it was amazing. He didn't have Twitter. So it was one-on-one where someone would say that to him or say, my father, who's gone now, he loved you so much. You can't buy that. You can't buy it. It should go to cancer researchers and military heroes and astronauts. It shouldn't go to sportscasters. But it does because sports is so – it's not that it's important to people. They love it. And you're part of it on the periphery, so you get the benefit of all that love. And I started to see that. I saw one, John, that was uh, – and some of that stuff, some of that stuff makes me tear up. It does. It was a family from San Diego. They'd gone to Santa Barbara on a vacation. And we were on uh, 1090 at the time, which boomed all the way up the West Coast of Alaska. And so I see their tweet that uh, we were in Santa Barbara with the entire family having a vacation. And we got in the car to drive home. We put the Padre game on. Uncle Teddy came on. And my wife looked at me and said, it's Uncle Teddy. It's like we're already home. Nice. I just, that makes me so happy. I don't deserve it, but it became so great like that during the end of my career with the Padres that it's, it was just sensational. You can't you can't understand. Uh, and Jerry being, you know, so, so low key. And so Jerry's ego was taken out at birth. I don't know if you know that or not, but it was strange, strange that they did that that operation when he was born. But I have more of an ego than, than Jerry did. I'm on television. I'm competing for the audience and all that stuff. And Jerry didn't do that. So to get that kind of love has been just wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's terrific. I mean, you, you are a part of San Diego culture, you know, and that, I, that, I'm not trying to be fanboy here, but no, it's legit. I, 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 I hear that <laughs> and I think, oh, come on. And the first time you hear it, it's like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no. The firefighter, the cop who shows up, he doesn't even know you. Mm-hmm. And there's somebody in there and... Uh, you know the one that always sticks in my mind? I don't mean my mind bounces around and around. Tom Snyder. Remember Tom Snyder oh, yeah. had that show that was after Carson. You know, Carson hated his guts, by the way. But <laughs> Tom, as an, as, an, as an aside, but Snyder was very, very into that. And he had this kind of a hippie woman back. This was back in the 70s with long hair and, and the beads and all that stuff. And, and and this was during the time that, you know, in, in Haight-Ashbury, wherever, they were you know, calling cops pigs and all this anti-war stuff. And, and the cops were trying to break up the demonstrations. And she said, I was that way. I was that way. I would call cops pigs and do that oink, oink, oink when they walk by and all that horrendous stuff. And uh, she said, then I was attacked by a guy in my apartment with a knife to my throat. Wow. Naked. Mm. And so was he. I was sleeping. He comes in and he's starting to rape me and he has this knife. And for whatever reason, whether he's on drugs or whatever, he fell asleep on top of me. (laughs) And I got from under him and I ran downstairs. Someone who had heard some noise in the apartment complex called the police. As I run down, naked, through the opening door, there's this motorcycle cop who just pulled up. He's like 6'5". He blots out the sun. He's 6'5", <laughs> with shoulders like this. His boots on. San Francisco is where it was. And the San Francisco PD. And I, I run literally across. I jump across the porch into his arms. And he holds me on my on his hip. And he pulls out his gun, waiting for this guy who's chasing me to come out the door. And he freeze. And this guy stops. And they arrest him and so forth. And her comment to Tom Snyder was, don't you ever, anyone ever call these men a pig in front of me wow. again. <laughs> they may, you th- may think they don't like their politics or whatever, but that pig was going to give his life up if he had to and, and be killed for someone like me who he didn't even know who had a bad idea of what the cops are like. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I got into this, but it's always been <laughs> in my mind. 
always been in my mind. Right. And uh, it's just, I did a commentary one time on uh, the Chargers at Channel 8 and whatever moves they made that didn't work out and so forth. And uh, after me was the president, Bob Myers, of, of, of uh, Channel 8, doing a commentary that really was critical of the police department. But the switchboard blew up because I said something about the Chargers. Nobody cared about the criticism about our police department. Really? Yeah. And so I came on the air the next and I talked about the phenomenon of, hey, Mr. Myers is talking about the police department. I'm talking about the Chargers, the football team. Who cares? And I got all the I got all the gas. So I'll tell you what you do. The next time someone is trying to break in your house, call the Chargers. <laughs> See if they get in the car, come and say, I am willing to save your family and die and take a bullet for you if I have to. That's what police departments do. So my comment always has been, no, I don't deserve this love. I really don't. All I did was do the games and broadcast them and so forth. But a lot of that is Jerry, and I know that. Mm. It was never Ted and Jerry. It was Jerry and Ted. Mm -hmm. And so they loved him so much. I was kind of like Larry Lucchino when he was the CEO. used to talk about when he was with Edward Bennett Williams, the big old lawyer who ran the the Orioles and hired Larry because Larry worked in his law firm. And suddenly Larry is in baseball and the CEO of the Orioles. And Larry would always say, I'm in, I'm in the vapor trail. I'm in the vapor trail. These rich, powerful guys. And I get opportunities to invest to become the CEO and all that. I was in the vapor trail of Jerry Coleman and got his love on me. And then when he left and I took over, that came to me so much. And then it became, oh, Ted, uh, you're my, I hear your voice. I think of my grandfather who's gone. And, and you're, you're as, as George Will once said, the commentator who loves baseball so much. And uh, George said, baseball, play-by-play has been the background of my life. Mm. The background music of my life, yes. my entire life. Mm-hmm. And it has been. And so having been the background music of a generation or two in San Diego, they equate me with that. And I'm, like I said, you can't buy it. I don't deserve it. But I love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, gosh. You, you deserve it. It's legit. I mean, there's so many great things. I mean, you're just sharing here in the book. And you're talking about Jerry Coleman. I mean, you, oh. there's so many stories. And I've heard you share so many stories <laughs> about Jerry. And they're just wonderful. But the one that I really love is when you're on the air and you would ask him, like, so, Jerry, what would you do today? What would you do today? Yeah. And that was just such a great bit. And we just, like, learn a lot more about him. You know where I stole that? I stole that. Remember the comedian, the, one of the first female comedians who was really terrific and kind of the trailblazer? for other women women aren't funny that Jerry Lewis always said that Jerry was a I'm not name dropping was a great friend of mine late in his life and in mine but Jerry always said that female comedians have set back comedy a thousand years Jerry would say and he hated this one and he hated this one and uh, Elaine Boozler was really the first to get great recognition she was dating oh you're going to help me here John uh, from Saturday Night Live not from Saturday Night Live but uh, from Taxi who played Latka uh, oh, uh, famous comedian did strange wrestling. He had an alter ego. He did yeah. strange wrestling things. Uh, Christopher Lloyd. Nope, nope, nope. And, and, and no, no. <laughs> we'll think of him later. Okay. Anyway, anyway, they were dating, and so whenever Lane Boozer, Andy was, Kaufman, Andy Kaufman, of yeah. course, and so Andy Kaufman would come to her shows mm-hmm. and sit in the back, and then when there was a pause, he would say, "Hey, Lane, what'd you do today?" <laughs> no idea why. And that was their bit that Andy's mm-hmm. here. Andy's here watching me and they would laugh and she wouldn't you know, bring him into the, the show per se, perhaps or per se. And so I 
But I somehow decided I'm going to do that with Jerry because all the stories he tells me off the air and on, are just wonderful, just wonderful with no guile and no ego. He's just, just and, and would tell stories on himself that would make him look like, you know, a, a kind of a spacey guy who would do forget stuff and, and use the wrong words. But he would tell those on himself. So I would never <laughs> tell them on him if it made him mad. But he mm-hmm. loved it to be called out on it. And so I would ask him. So we're doing a broadcast and we're in Denver. And the, the the Hyatt that we stayed in was booked for a convention, so they put us at the Embassy Suites in downtown Denver. And so Jerry always, because his serum cholesterol was over 300, so the doctor put him on a walking program. He had to walk every morning. And so he's always like, Jerry, what'd you do today? Well, I went out for a walk, and I'm walking through downtown Denver. We're at a different hotel, you know, I know, and uh, I, I got lost. I got totally lost. And I finally, a cop comes up and says, can I help you, sir? Because I'm looking... <laughs> Looking around like a like a, a tourist from the, from Tennessee in New York City, looking at the big buildings. Whoa, boy, <laughs> totally lost. And he says, "Yeah, I'm with the Padres. We're playing the Rockies tonight in baseball, and I uh, can't find my hotel." Do you remember anything about the name? And Jerry says, "I, I think it's the NBC Suites." NBC Suites. <laughs> the, guy, the cop says, no, I, I don't think we have an NBC Suite. We have an Embassy Suites. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, what, that's what it is. That's what it is. So the guy literally walks me all the way to the Embassy Suites. I said, Jerry, did you buy an ice cream cone and patch in the top of the head and call your mom and say everything is okay? No, 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 no. <laughs> but it just, it just seems so many like adventures. Every day, yeah. Oh, every day it was yeah. like that. Every day. And, and then we're in Chicago. And I go leave separately from him the day before, and I'm waiting forever. The cabs, there's lots of them, but they're all the Wrigley Field, 33,000 coming out, and they want the cabs. And I, I go with him the next day, and he walks right out, right down the street, and cab stops, we get in. How did you do that? How did you do that? So the next I ask him, Jerry, what would you do today? Well, we did this and that and this and that. Then I tell the story. Jerry's unbelievable. I cannot get a cab when I'm alone. But with him, he walks right out there and he gets a cab. Jerry on the air. How do you do that? And he said, well, first of all, you got to expose yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Not to him. He doesn't hear what the the double entendre of that. He says you have to expose yourself. And that, so I always called him like from Burns and Allen. Mm-hmm. That leaves a lot of young people out. But Gracie, yeah, Gracie, yeah, Gracie and George. People remember George Burns when he was older, but they were married to Gracie. They were a comedy team, and George was a straight man, and, and Gracie was hysterical. So that's what I, I thought it was with me and Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> so I would occasionally call him Gracie. So he says, "You got to expose yourself." Gra- Gracie explained this. <laughs> I mean, just what what a special guy. And I mean, he would say, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. You know what I mean. My exposure stuff, you got to go out there and, and literally in front of the car, in front of the cab, and be there exposed. <laughs> oh, that's why. That's why. Yeah, you know. You know. He knew where I was leading him. You know, right, leading, right. leading the horse, not the water, but the trouble. And he said, you got to stop him. I said, yeah, but those 300 people waiting in the cabs were calling us really, really bad names. <laughs> really ugly. I don't care. You get in the cab and you go, 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 go. And that's what he does. And it was just every day something else of what did you do today? And I remember... And Allen, that kind of Gracie stuff, where somebody would ask uh, Gracie, uh, How was your vacation with George? It was fine. Did you go by plane or boat? I don't know. George bought the tickets. That kind of stupid, <laughs> crazy stuff. She was like that, and Jerry was unintentionally like that. Yeah. And everybody loved him more for it. More mm. for it, including me. Yah, what a just a really special guy, oh, Jerry the Coleman. Best. I mean, and and, the best. and as a he was a legit player for the Yankees, wasn't he? Like the roommate of Mickey Mantle back in the day. He was. He was. He was. They roomed him with Mantle because Mantle was carousing and drinking and coming in at three o'clock in the morning and trying desperately to sleep with. If 
not everyone, every third woman in Manhattan <laughs> at that time. So they, and, and the same thing with the, with the Mercury 7 astronauts. Wally Schirra was a, may he rest in peace, one of my heroes, lived in Rancho Santa Fe, the, one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts, one of my absolute heroes. And I got to call him friend. That's what this business does for you. It's not the money. It's the amazing, interesting people who are absolutely better than you. Mm. In, in Wally's case, you know, I always used to tell Wally, how do you walk? <laughs> you say, what do you mean? You, you got more than two, right? You got more than two. I know you have at least yeah. three or four. How do you walk? Right. And he knew what I was talking yeah, about, yeah. as you do. Yeah. <laughs> but those those kinds of people are just uh, just absolutely unbelievable. And this business exposes you. Hear that word again? Yeah. To those kind of people, and it's just it's it's like gold. It's like gold. And I consider Jerry in that realm of a man who went, you know, twice. Left the Yankees for, and and never said this publicly, but he told me, I was never the same when I left the second time. When I went to Korea, when the colonel I met in New York asked me to come back, and I said yes, and go back in after World War II, and I was never the same player. Never. And he would never make that statement like he was whining, oh, the moment come back in, and mm-hmm. I was never that good a player again anymore, and I, I couldn't hold my job, you know, at uh, second base. That's where Billy Martin became the second baseman, because Jerry wasn't that good anymore after missing a couple of more years after he did for World War II. Mm-hmm. When you have somebody like that and you call them friend, you're in awe. Yeah. You're in awe of a man like that with the kind of guts that he had and the things that he would do. And it was, uh, and speaking of astronauts, when Jerry went through shell shock. Oh, yeah. People don't know that either. Mm-hmm. He got to the point, he saw his best friend in the world, whose name, is, forgive me, I forget, his wingman blown to bits. Oh. Right next, right next door, next door, right next to his plane, mm-hmm. gone. And his widow would never accept the telegram or the visit from the Marines. She basically told the Marines, I'll believe that he's gone when Jerry Coleman tells me he's gone. Mm. So Jerry comes back from Korea after his shell shock of this and, and all the missions over and over and over. It's a normal reaction. We know about post-traumatic stress now. They didn't right. know back then. It was just, hey, just pull up your bootstraps and get out, back out there yeah. and fly 10 more missions. That's what Jerry lived through. Never complained a word in it, a, a word ever about that. But then when he came back, they had Jerry Coleman Day at Yankee Stadium. I was so proud. I was so proud when I heard that. And I didn't hear it from him. I never knew about it. Andy Strasberg, who was oh, his yeah. agent, yeah. told me one day. They had Jerry Coleman Day. Oh, yeah. And and he got, a, got and Andy got me a picture. And there's Mel Allen, the voice of the Yankees, the master of nice. ceremonies, one of my heroes growing up in New York, listening to the, the Yankee games as a kid. And, and all these other celebrities are at home plate. And there's Jerry. And, and there's a guy in a, a navy white, dress white uniform with 8,000 medals. And I look at the picture and I say, isn't that Admiral Halsey? Isn't that Bull Halsey? Yeah. Yeah. Jerry's never told me that. Admiral Halsey came mm. to Jerry Coleman Day. Those are the guys that won the war wow. for this country. Nice. Those are the, that's why people, things in San Diego were named for these men at right. the naval bases. Admiral Halsey. Okay. My God. And I, I mean, said, He's a legit hero, man. Yeah, so I go to Jerry and say, you were, Admiral Halsey was a Jerry Coleman Day you never yeah. told me? Why would I tell you? That's Jerry's <laughs> thought process. Right. Why would I tell you that? I, yes, I told you. Eagle came out at birth. And what I loved was when the Padres unveiled the statue to Jerry, which stands at one of the entrances to Petco Park. I was the master of ceremonies for that, one of the great honors of my life. And they had invited, and Maggie had invited, Admiral Halsey's granddaughter, who they had befriended. 
and she was there representing Admiral Halsey. <sighs> this broadcasting has given me these memories, these moments. And it is. It's more than the money. It's more than recognition. It's more than, aren't you uh, so-and-so? It's just been, I'm so honored to have known Jerry. That's all. Let alone side-by-side, side, driving to games, driving home on the team bus, side-by-side side in the broadcast booth for 35 years. What did I ever do to deserve such wonderful, wonderful treatment? Mm. That's him. Yeah. And just a great guy. And, oh. and I, I remember the day that he passed. And it was a really emotional day here in San oh, Diego. Please, please. I mean, you and were I wasn't in, here. You were in Kansas. I was you? in Kansas for the Aztecs to play at the, the famed Allen Fieldhouse for Fog Allen, one of the inventors, as it were, early on of basketball. And I had uh, been there as, with Oklahoma when I did the Oklahoma basketball games in 72 and 73. So I'd been there before, but now the Aztecs are going. And it was wonderful. They had Joel Embiid, who's now the big star with the 76ers, but Skylar Spencer played him off his feet for nice. the Aztecs. It was just great. And the noise <laughs> level was mind-boggling. I, I, I wear hearing aids now. I think the biggest blow to my hearing was that day and that noise in Allen Fieldhouse coming through my headphones. Really? Incredible. And I had talked to Maggie because Jerry had been in the hospital. He had that fall. And I talked to Maggie when I called her before the game. And you said there was some brain activity, and, and there was a little bit of optimism, but it wasn't wasn't the case. <clears throat> so we go through the game, and I'm I'm on I'm on a high. It's a drug. I'm on a high. The yeah. Aztecs beat Kansas. That was a it's huge the, day. To this day, it's the single biggest win in Aztec basketball oh, history for, sure. for me. Where they're playing, they never lose at home at Allen Fieldhouse, and uh, we get we throw to the break as it were, and we're getting ready for the post game show. And Steve Fisher is going to come on the postgame show. And in my headset, the engineer says, they want to talk to you back in San Diego. And I put my headphones on and they said, before Fish comes on, we need you to make the announcement. And I said, what are you talking about? What announcement? That Jerry Coleman died during the game. And I said, what? Because Maggie had given me, I, maybe she was trying to, as, as his friend, and, and Maggie, even at the memorial service, came up to me and said, you know, Jerry loved you. Mm. <laughs> Moments I will never, ever forget. And thank you, Maggie. Thank you so much. And so they said, it should come from you. You should tell. We haven't put it on the news. And it should come from you. And so I just, I don't know how. I don't know what I said. I, I can't remember. I was in shock. Oh. And I gave the announcement, ladies and gentlemen, I have news for you. It's a great Aztec win. But, and I went and said whatever I said. And uh, it was so typical of Steve that uh, at, the, at the airport, where I could barely hear from all that noise amplified in my headphones, that Coach Fisher came up to me and said, my condolences. I know how much you loved him. I know how much he loved mm -hmm. you. And I want to say, I'm, I'm so sorry. And that's so, so Steve Fisher. Another guy blessed by God to work with and know in my lifetime. He's an angel. Oh, my gosh. I mean, if there was a, ever a, a sports personality or, or manager or player that has that heart of an angel. No question. It's Steve Fisher. No question. Nick Canepa of, of the Union Tribune, a longtime 40-year friend of mine, was near death years ago. And uh, he hadn't talked to Fish, he told me, in years. And uh, the phone rings in Nick's house. Hello? Nick, it's Coach Fisher. <laughs> and I thought, so typical. Yeah. 
I haven't talked to him forever. I'm not. I haven't covered the Aztecs. I'm doing my column, whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's 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 what you have. There's what you have. That that kind of a guy. We were in uh, Las Vegas for the Mountain West Championship game, and the women's team, not the Aztec women's team, but I, I believe Fresno State, but I don't remember, they're right next door sharing a common wall in the locker room at the Thomas and Mack Center. They've just won their championship. The Aztecs are getting ready for theirs. And the girls next door are screaming and yelling. They're fighting. They're singing their fight song. They're banging on the walls, and you can barely hear yourself talk in the Aztec locker room. And so all of a sudden, the, the supervisor of the, of the uh, uh, Security people comes in and, and a woman who says to Coach Fisher, I, I, I took care of it next door. You don't have to worry. And Steve said, took her a what? What are you talking about? They were making all that noise and you probably couldn't even hear yourself think getting your team ready. But I told them to be quiet. And Steve says, look, do me a favor. I didn't ask you to do that. I appreciate that. They're thinking of me, but do me a favor. Go back. Go back next door. Tell them I said. You bang on the walls, you scream and yell, yes. you sing your song, yeah. you shout to the rafters. Because that's what we're getting ready to do when we win this championship coming up now as the next game. Right. And they should be able to do whatever they want. What a guy. Who does that? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody does that. Who does that? And she said, okay, I'm sorry, coach. And she went back. It was all quiet. Went back and all of a sudden you heard this giant roar <laughs> next door. And they started banging on the walls again and celebrating. Because Coach Fish said, that's their right. That's their, they won. That's what you do. This is part of what we're doing here in, in sports. It's not just the winning. It's how you win and celebrate and the euphoria. And he got that. He always gets that. And like I said, I got to spend, when he first came here in 1999, all the way through his career until he handed it over to Brian Dutcher, another wonderful person. Mm-hmm. And I just, and I get that question all the time. What's Coach Fisher like? Sit down. How much time do you have? <laughs> this is what he's like. I mean, you've been around. I mean, so many wonderful people in your oh, career. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we can go down the list of so many people. But I really want to touch on one individual because he's very special to our hometown of Poway. Tony that's Gwynn. Tony Gwynn. Of course. You know, of course. All, all-time great. I mean, I, I, there's so many great stories about Tony. Can you share a few? It was just... I. I Another, I don't know how I ever, ever got in that position. I got in that position because before he became a Padre, he was an Aztec. And I'm at, at basketball practice in 1978, and uh, they would not let him play baseball for the, for the Aztecs. Tim Vesey was the coach, and he would not let Tony play two sports. And that made Tony crazy because Tony was great. I didn't say good. Great in basketball. Still holds the all-time assist record at San Diego State. You can look it up. And it's been a long time since he played. And uh, I introduced myself. And he said, yeah, I watched you on television. And I said to him, well, maybe we can be friends anyway. <laughs> and he laughed at Tony Gwynn laugh. That was yeah. the first time I heard the Tony Gwynn laugh uh, yeah. that I played at his memorial that I was oh, voicing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say, you don't MC at something like that. And I'm certainly not a minister. No. But that was a moment where I was totally out of my element. I, I, I don't do funerals. I don't do memorials. I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, we start out and I... We start out with the releasing of, of 19 doves going 19. to the heavens. And Perfect. I'm trying to hold it together. And yeah. I look down at the first row at the, in, the, in the seats down from the platform I'm on, and I see Alicia crying so hard, so mm. hard. So I walk off the podium and walk down and squat in front of her and hold her hands and whatever. And I'm just lost. I'm just lost. How am I going to get through this? How am I going to even mention his name? What am I going to do? I love this guy. And I went back up, and then it, it Petco, of course, and the people in the upper stands, upper level, down the left field line, when I paused, I could hear, Tony, Tony, yeah. Tony, building and building and building. And then I thought, 
this is not a funeral. This is literally a celebration of one of the great men we've ever known. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to turn it into a memorial or a funeral. The funeral was later. And then I was okay. Then I was like, okay, now you're just emceeing something for a bunch of Padre fans who loved him just like you love him. Now get out there and do this. And I was able to maintain and get through that thanks to the Padre fans who were doing that. It made it seem like it's a ball game, and it's Tony, Tony, every time he comes to the plate. But to know someone like that, my gosh, it was shy, so shy. And I used to see that that transformation to become Mr. Padre, where uh, you need some quotes, go to Tony Gwynn. You need somebody to fill your notebook up with with stories, go to Tony Gwynn. And he was always there for everybody, everybody, with his comment that by the time I leave this world, I want everybody who wants a Tony Gwynn autograph to have a Tony Gwynn autograph. Wow. That's the way he was. And I don't know if I can tell this or not, but Junior told me this story fairly recently. I'd never heard it before. But when he would go home and he would drive by this bus stop, uh, even as a young man, and uh, there was this older guy waiting for the bus day after day after day after day. And Tony had seen him for like 20 years. And he finally pulled over with Junior in the car. And he said, hey, buddy. And the guy comes over and he says, yeah, Mr. Gwynn, good to see you, man. How you doing? Hi, hey, Tony. I loved you since you were playing at uh, Poly and then high school and in Long Beach. Wow. I always loved you. And uh, he said, what, what do you, I've seen you at the bus since I was 15. How come you don't have a car? How come you don't drive? I don't have enough money. I don't have a car. And you've been taking the bus every day? Yes. Get in the car. I'll take you to work. But first, we're going to a car dealer. Really? And bought him a car. Awesome. I never heard that story. That's Tony Gwynn. Wow. That's Tony Gwynn. And we didn't see another 1,500 things like that that we never heard about, that I never heard about as close as I thought I was to him. And that shy little kid, I remember the first time <laughs> he beat Texas El Paso when the Aztecs went in the whack and beat him with a 15-foot jump shot. And I had him on the postgame show, first time, first interview. It was deadly. It was deadly. I would ask something, he'd give me a two-word answer. And I thought, oh. well, next question. <laughs> Wait a minute, Tony. I got to get out my dental tools and pull some teeth here, right. and make you, give me a longer answer. And I would tease him about that for the for the next twenty years about the dental tools, and he knew exactly what I was talking about because he became so eloquent, so loquacious, so unbelievable. And he thought it was his duty to do that. He didn't want to do the interviews. He didn't want to be Mister Padre. He didn't want to you know show up anybody on his team because they said no, I ain't talking. And Tony would not say that to someone. He just wouldn't. And other times when he was really busy because he had to do what he had to do. This is the time that I shag. This is the time that I practice this and that and I run sprints. Whatever it is, I, I don't have time. I'm sorry. And he would always feel bad about that. Even if it was somebody from a weekly out in Alpine and he'd never met him before. And then when he got done, he would go to that person and say, okay, now I have time. And he'd sit down and he'd fill this guy's notebook with 30 minutes of, of great, great stuff. Huh. What a gift. From God, he was to all of us. And and then he coached uh, at his alma mater back at San Diego State. And I've seen videos of him working with the younger players, like little leaguers. He loved that. Just the art of hitting. Because everybody thought, well, he's just doing this. And he would come to me and say, these people think I'm just using San Diego State as a stepping stone. I don't care about the majors. I want to teach. Yeah. You can't teach some guy, you know, who's been doing it the same way and, and so forth. Batting coaches, please, these kids, I can actually make an impact. And that's what I want to do. No, he's going to be a GM. You know, he, he doesn't like to travel. He's afraid of flying. He always was afraid of flying. So he didn't want to be a coach that's on the team bus, a team bus and team plane and fly. But a general manager doesn't have to do that as much. And so they said, oh, no, he's going to be a general manager. And I go to Tony and say, did you read so-and-so saying you're going to be a GM? He's like, I don't understand it. Theodore, he always called me. <laughs> I told Junior that, how much I missed that. And now when I see Junior, he says, Theodore! Right on. In that same voice. 
and I'm in love, man. I just think it's so wonderful. And and he was always saying, I'm, a, I'm an Aztec for life. That's not just a phrase they use out there in Montezuma Mesa. Mm-hmm. I'm an Aztec for life, Ted, and you know I'm not using this. I'm going to be there. And he would have been there to this day if he hadn't gone at 54, for heaven's sakes. And that's that's uh, that's the way he was. You know, Aztec for life, it makes me think of the Carl Weathers story that's in your book. True story. True story. This is after Rocky one before Rocky 82, 83, mm-hmm. all of which I managed to miss except Rocky one. <laughs> and uh, Carl Weathers comes on, Apollo Creed, yeah. halftime at an Aztec game. I don't know what he's doing there. So I asked someone, he said, oh, no, he played for Don Coriel. Carl Weathers was a good linebacker mm-hmm. for, for Don Coriel. So I have him on. I introduce him. Uh, you've seen Rocky. And uh, this is Carl Weathers, a former Aztec who played for Don Coriel at linebacker and uh, now becoming big, big star thanks to being in Rocky. And uh, Carl, how you doing? Nothing. Carl, this is radio. You need to speak. You need to speak. <laughs> they can't see us. I know. I know. But you call me a former Aztec, man. There ain't no such thing as a former Aztec. That's right. You're an Aztec for life. That's it. And I loved it. I love that, too. That was a great story in That's there. That's the truth. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've heard that expression. I've, I've, I've emceed the induction of the Aztec Hall of Fame years after year after year, where you feel that when, mm-hmm. when, when Marshall Falk comes back, when Karai is being inducted, and they speak of this, this brotherhood of all these guys on all these teams that are brothers to this day. White, black ain't got nothing to do with it. They're all brothers. Mm-hmm. They're all brothers. Others. And uh, I've been honored to be on the periphery of that by doing Aztec football and basketball for, for many, many years, my 28th year right now, and having met all these incredible people. And uh, they are, in fact, and they believe that. It's not just talk. They believe it for the brotherhood. I'm an Aztec for life. Beautiful. You know, <laughs> and, and you've been there with the Aztecs since the uh, when it was Cox Arena. And then Vieja. So you've seen that transform. Oh, I was back back in the sports arena. Oh, wow. And they couldn't draw enough in the sports arena to pay the rent that they were paying to the sports arena and and even break even. So they moved back to Peterson Gym. I remember that. Oh, that's old place. That's an old place. And it's two levels and they get whatever it holds. And I would be up on the second level with a card table. I felt like I was back in Thanksgiving with the, with the, with the family <laughs> and the little kid. I was the youngest. I'd be at the card table with the other young cousins. And I couldn't make, the, I couldn't make the, the, big, the main showroom. I couldn't play the big table with, with the adults. And I, I, was back on my, I was back on the Thanksgiving card table and I was there. They set it up and I would broadcast the games for years because they were nothing. And Smoking Gaines, his office was a trailer a trailer across the street on 55th Street from, from uh, Peterson Gym. And imagine bringing recruits in and, and showing them you're playing here at Peterson Gym. Here's my office. <laughs> it's a trailer. And what has happened there gets back to the guy we were talking about before, Steve Fisher. Mm. No Steve Fisher, no Cox Arena. And you could extrapolate that all the way through. Because fundraisers at the school have told me this. Without Steve Fisher and winning and Cox Arena, there's no Snapdragon Stadium. Mm-hmm. I believe that. It's all gone in way. And it all began with a basketball team that was, I believe, 5-23 and 23 in Steve's first year. And uh, he's going across campus, you know, giving out tickets. Yeah. And I told him, Steve, if you were in a, in a business here in San Diego and you put two of those tickets up on the bulletin board, there'd be four up there the next day. <laughs> you can't, as the old saying, you can't give them away. Mm-hmm. He would laugh, but he would tell me, watch, I'm as- not giving up. I'm not giving up. I'm an old Midwestern guy, and I've got... 
I don't give up. And he didn't. And there's this program is along with Gonzaga. And for many years, way beyond UCLA and USC, without any question. And the Essex beating UCLA and, and USC regularly. And the other members of the TAC, Pac-12, Steve Fisher, Brian Dutcher, they changed the landscape. I think the biggest building projects ever of impossible jobs, what they did with football at Boise State and what Steve and Dutch did in basketball at San Diego State. Yeah, incredible. I yes. mean, they really put the university on the map. And I bet you're recruiting a lot more s- college students there. And I'm sure Fisher plays a part in that as well. All of that. People will tell you that whether it's Ohio State or San Diego State. And I like that because, you know, they played Ohio State in the Mau- Maui Imitation. I saw the tweets because they always say, I'm from the Ohio State University. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all these tweets saying, by the way, I'm from the San Diego State University. <laughs> yeah. Aztec fans were saying, I don't want to hear that crap. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. And who won? San Diego State beat Ohio State. It was wonderful. It was was wonderful. But that's that's what they did. And it was just a miracle. I thought it would never happen. And they had Steve Brandenburg after he took Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Steve Brandenburg? That's not his first name. Sorry. Jim? Jim Brandenburg, yeah, right? Yeah. Jim Brandenburg, I really liked him a lot, and I thought mm-hmm. this guy's really good. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he can't go through an airport. I would be with him traveling, and people would, you get in, the, you get in that Sweet Sixteen on national television on CBS, and that's 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 that Brandenburg guy from Wyoming all the time. And I thought this guy's going to get it done. Couldn't come close. Couldn't come close. Only Fisher and Dutcher could get it. Cl- and I thought it will never happen. And then it happened. It's amazing, unbelievable. I mean, what what I mean, the stories you have with the Padres. With, I mean, we can even go talk about Clippers. I mean, you've been through it all here <laughs> in San Diego. Because I've been so darn lucky. And the book is really good. I wonder why it didn't sell more. It should have sold millions. Well, but I assure you it did not. Now. <laughs> you can get it where? At Amazon, right? Is it available yes, on Amazon? It's available at Amazon. Okay, TED Talks. Under TED Talks. Um, <laughs> and talks and talks and talks and talks yeah. and has to have a drink of water. <laughs> you know, as, as I was preparing for this interview, I was, you know, I've been reading your book for the, you know, Jerry gave me the book and I've been reading it over time. And, and I thought, you know what, this is going to end up being the easiest interview in the world because I'll just tee up a few questions. <laughs> and he never shuts up. Of course. <laughs> You're going to keep going. So tell, tell the audience a little bit about your backstory of how you started on the East Coast as a child and yeah. find your way to the West Coast here in San Diego. Yeah. And, and the deal was... You never met a more shy, withdrawn, non-verbal, non-communicative human in your life with a, with a father who was incredibly verbally abusive as well as physically abusive, but not as much as the verbal. And I think the verbal hurts more, quite frankly. And uh, boy, I just looked at my hair, John, <laughs> in, in your monitor there. And it's just you don't you don't see it when you look in your own mirror and then you look in the television monitor and think thinning hair falling out in the back, hearing aids. Can't see very well. And that's the short list. That's the short list. Wow. Hey. Well, who, who the hell is that old guy with John Riley? Yeah, I don't thought, looking at the, the, the monitor. My <laughs> gosh. And so all this verbal abuse. And I'm telling you, when your father calls you a bastard and mm. a son of a bitch and you're stupid, you're useless. And I told him I'm going to major in radio television and be a sportscaster. You have no discernible talent. You can't even carry on a conversation with someone. And I was, I was very shy. I was very shy. I'll never forget. My aunt had rented a a nightclub in in Manhattan for her, my cousin, her daughter, her sweet 16, bought out the entire club, had big bucks. And uh, I was very shy. And I was sitting by myself. I was 14, I think at the time she Mm -hmm. was 16. I was 14. And, uh, 
my father comes up and says, why don't you ask one of the girls to dance? I, I don't know. And he says to me, what a drip. Wow. And I used to think about that later when I got bigger and thought, I wish I could have knocked him on his ass right there mm. in that nightclub. How much that hurt. Mm. And you live with that and you believe it. Oh, for sure. And you believe it. You, kids, kids, as they say, kids live what they learn and they're what they hear. And so, my, and I got it less than my older brother. The oldest got it worse, both physically and, and verbally. So for me, who, when I had to give an oral report in school, both grade school, junior high and high school, I would cut school, face his wrath and his belt, as it were, mm. to cut school, not to have to get up in front of 15 guys, most of them are my friends, girls and boys, not to say, my report is on such and such and yada, yada, yada. I, I, I wouldn't go to school. I was so afraid of public speaking, as most people are, <laughs> really? as, as they show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, Jerry Seinfeld always used that line that they did national research that people are more afraid of public speaking than dying. So Seinfeld says, so what you're telling me is they would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. <laughs> 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 but that happens to be the truth. Yeah. That's the truth. And I have this happen to me uh, all the times that I've been an MC at, at 60,000 at Jack Murphy Stadium, and I'm at home plate by myself or with Jerry or at Petco with 43,000. I'm alone at home plate, and I take a deep breath, and I look up at the upper deck packed with people and think, God, I love this. I yeah. love this so much. Thank you, Padres, for letting me do this all these years on opening day and inductions into the Hall of Fame and all of these special days for Tony Gwynn and Ken Caminiti and so forth. It's been such a great part of, of what I've been allowed to do as well as the play-by-play. But And I tell kids this all the time, that if I can do that, if I can do what I've done professionally, being that traumatized as a kid and thinking I'm worthless, I have absolutely no worth whatsoever – that uh, and I can overcome it no matter what your handicap in your in your own mind or whatever it happens to be that you have not physically but I can't do this and I can't do that you can do it if this yutz from New York City <laughs> can do it you can do it right. and I really believe that mm-hmm. I mean well you I mean you blazed a trail across the United States I mean tell us about it I know you were and in that's just my marriages I know. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously folks room shot. <laughs> But it, it's been absolutely amazing. And if I planned it, it, it would never have happened. But it just happened. It was kismet. It just absolutely happened. I was in Oklahoma City, and I was succeeding doing the Oklahoma football basketball games and doing uh, the news on, on Channel 9, the CBS affiliate in Oklahoma City. And uh, then I took a job at Hartford. And I thought, you know what? To put more pressure on myself to go to a bigger market like Hartford, I'm not going to use a script. I'll use an outline from now on for this last few months before I go to Hartford. And so I would tell the director, I'm going to talk about the Sooners, then Oklahoma State, and then a little bit of the minor league baseball team. That'll be the order of the films. It was filmed before there was tape back Mm -hmm. then. He said, okay, thank God. Ridley was his name. What's his first name? Great guy. Terrific guy. Great, great director. And he would help me do that. I couldn't have done it without him. And so I had that confidence when I went to Hartford to totally use no notes, no script, and just look at the camera and do it. And the fascinating part, which I couldn't have planned, like I said, was that when they did the marketing research there in Hartford, and this was a big station with huge ratings, mm-hmm. WFSB, Channel 3, owned by Post Newsweek in Washington. And uh, all the people would say, I, I, I don't like sports. I don't watch sports. But he looks right at me. 
where normally you know, broadcasters would do this before the teleprompter. This was pre-teleprompter mm-hmm. in the evening and in the sports, up and down, up and down, looking at their script. And so I'm just looking at them saying, and, and the Whalers are playing hockey and so-and-so. I don't know what they're thinking about so-and-so and doing this and that. And they would continue to tell the researchers, I, I love how he looks right at me like he's given the sports to me. Mm-hmm. And I never heard that. Like I said, I'm not smart enough to think of it, but it added to my popularity. And people would say, I used to go to the bathroom. I used to go to the bathroom during the sports. <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm watching this guy. I love his smile. And I, I it was, and, and because they're looking, I'm looking right at them. And they never had that happen on television in their life in a news sort of a presentation. Mm-hmm. So things like that just started to happen by sheer luck, not talent, sheer luck. And it went all the way through the other cities until here, where nobody had done that in television here. And it wasn't my talent. It was the fact that it hadn't been done before. And the same thing would be happening. It's like he's giving me the sportscast. He's talking right to me. And he's not reading it to me. He's like in conversation, talking. Well, that's like what they say, breaking the fourth wall. Is that what it's called? Because you know who used to do that was Don Knotts on Three's Company. He would like <laughs> he would look at the camera and sort of wink. And personalize it, right. Yeah. Well, we talked about Burns and Allen yeah. on, on the George Burns and Gracie Allen show. Mm-hmm. Part of it was they'd have something happen, the plot would thicken, and then he would <laughs> take a cigar and he would turn to the camera and say, well, and come out of, out of character and mm-hmm. turn to the camera and say, well, see, Gracie thinks, I don't know that she did such and such, <laughs> but I'm letting you people in on it. It was a great, great technique. And, and they would say, this is what's going to happen here shortly. And George is going to do that. And Grace is going to be surprised. And boy, is she going to be in trouble? I better watch. And that's <laughs> stepping out of character to do that. Yeah. And that's what they thought I was doing to them. And it also, it also, and I tell this working with people who want, whether it's corporations that want or executives who have asked me to show me how to talk to the media, show me how to hold a news conference, stuff like that. And uh, I charge them a fortune, a fortune, <laughs> because they have it. Yeah. <laughs> but the key I found was if you can't make a mistake, like I could maybe standing up in front of those 15 kids, then there's nothing to be nervous about. So when you're looking at the camera and you're being conversational and you say, wait, 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 wait a minute, what did I say? Did I say Padres? No, no, no. I, I, meant, I meant the soccers. I was talking about the soccers. That kind of a thing. So you're correcting yourself on the air as in, no, 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 that's what am I thinking? That, like you're in conversation, me and you. Yes. And that's what I started to do. And I thought, well, now I can never make a mistake because you'll see people give a report and they'll get stuck into something and and they're turning red and it's that's what they're afraid of being embarrassed in front of people and standing mm-hmm. up to do public speaking but if you can't make a mistake because you don't act like you made a mistake and you keep going they don't know right they don't know whether it's on television or talking to the Kiwanis they don't know what you're supposed to say move on and a lot of executives and others who speak to the media and to a thousand people at a luncheon don't know that and I don't even know where the hell I got it from I just <laughs> realized it mm-hmm. Like I said, I never planned anything. I ain't that smart. Not that smart. I've always been a big proponent of John Wayne's comment. Life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I was not born with, a, with my, my brother, two years older than me, was a Ph.D., is a Ph.D., a dean of his college, National Honor Society, first in his class, scholarship, all that stuff. And uh, I knew it. And like Clint Eastwood said, man's got to know his limitations. Mm-hmm. And I knew I'm not that smart. And so for this stuff to happen to me with no other discernible talents, like my father said, <laughs> I had no discernible talent. For this to happen is a miracle every day. And in writing the book with, with uh, John Freeman, mm-hmm. whose dad was Don Freeman, who was the longtime uh, radio TV and mm-hmm. Hollywood writer for the mm-hmm. union, a wonderful guy, a wonderful guy. And you meet John and you know Don. That apple doesn't fall far from the tree, unfortunately, mm-hmm. for mine. 
it's a bad, it's a bad apple. <laughs> it's a bad apple. But that's that's the that's the way it is. I, in writing the book with him, it was like, oh my god, I forgot about that. I forgot about that guy that gave me that job, the guy that gave me that advice. And I try to do that for young people in broadcasting or want to go into broadcasting instead of the usual. No, don't, don't go in. The pressure will kill you. It's awful. It's awful. And it is. It's it's like Eric Severide. Remember, I used to do the commentaries yeah. for CBS. Yeah. He was asked what broadcasting was like, and he said, to me, the ultimate sensation of being in broadcasting is like being bitten to death by ducks. <laughs> That's what Severide's <laughs> definition of broadcasting was. And it is with the deadlines and mm-hmm. everybody's a critic. Nowadays, everybody's got a phone, oh, so yeah. they're all critics. Mm-hmm. And you suck and you're terrible. And it's always those reviews and comments that you see that uh, my, my here in, in the San Diego when I did commentaries, they called it lightning strikes mm-hmm. with a lightning yeah. bolt and whatever. And they thought they changed that because it looked like the charger lightning bolt. We had mm-hmm. all that nonsense to go through. But I started that in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, there was a, a guy, the radio TV writer for the Hartford Current, big, big time newspaper mm-hmm. going to a lot of people in Massachusetts and, and, and Connecticut and, and New York. And uh, and the headline in his review of my sports was Lightner striking out. Oh, <laughs> and I thought, this is not good. This is not good. <laughs> and those devastate you. They devastate oh, yeah. you. And then someone says, you're terrific. I would never go to the bathroom mm-hmm. during your sports. And you kind of you kind of The ultimate dis- compliment. Right, the ultimate compliment. <laughs> I would never do that. And you dismiss that. But the one that nails you like that. Yeah. Bette Midler, who I think has one of the great voices of all time. Oh, yeah. She acts kind of crazy and all that stuff. But she is something else. You hear her sing The Rose. And if you're not crying, you're not listening. You're not paying attention. She had a review. I forget what, what play she was in or whatever it was or a concert. This guy took her apart. And and it was her and her chubby cheeks and her chipmunk teeth and her this and that and her obnoxious. She didn't leave the house for a year. Really? She was so devastated. She could not face the public. She couldn't. And everybody would tell her the same thing. This guy's a yutz. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have your talent. He would give his left, you know what, to have your talent. I don't mean arm. To yeah. be, have your talent yeah. and be Bette Midler or the male version of Bette Midler and have millions of dollars and live in Beverly Hills like you do. Don't you understand? He just he doesn't have talent. He just looks at talent and tells people about it. You are Bette Midler. And you couldn't reach her. She wow. could not leave the house. So it is. It's, it's a lot of criticism, and I got a lot of it because I did it like nobody else had done it in those different markets in, in Hartford and in Philadelphia and in San Diego. And you know, to this day, I'll read one and think, oh, I can literally feel mm. the physical pang mm. of that, of hit of because maybe it relates to the old man. And my family. Mm-hmm. And now I got another guy. This guy, you know, Lakeside, who's got a, a phone, and suddenly he's doing reviews of me, and he's, you know, my new dad, kind of a thing. It hurts. But if you don't want the privilege of what we talked about, meeting all these wonderful people and seeing all these great ball games and doing the play-by-play, shut up, get out. <laughs> so I, I would not be, I would not come on and, and do a show about criticism or critics and whine about it because that's stupid. Mm-hmm. This is what you wanted. You want to want to be known. Mm-hmm. You want to be recognized. And if you don't get recognized, then you're not going to be. You won't be successful because they will they'll fire you for not being known and recognized in your television job. And I was very lucky to attract a lot of attention for whatever reasons, good or bad, good and bad, and succeeded. It was just. But I'm well aware of this business of uh, the love hate thing. Rusty Nails, who was a wonderful guy and a, and a comedian locally in clubs, that had had the line that he used in his act that uh, you know marketing research at, at Channel Eight shows that uh, there are only two kinds of people in San Diego: you either hate Ted Leitner 
Oh, you are Ted Leitner. <laughs> <laughs> what a great line. And Rusty, we lost Rusty a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a great line. But it really was. It was a it was a, a love-hate, push-pull, it, it, the Howard Stern, Howard Cosell kind of a thing, to mm-hmm. use a couple of Howards, mm-hmm. that it's the old, like in his movie, where they tell him about the ratings. Well, the, the people that love you are listening 20%. And the people that hate you are listening 40%. Yeah. That kind of a thing. Right. I could never, like I said, not smart enough to plan that, but it would be that way where people would call Bob Myers, the CEO, and say, that son of a said this and that. And these are friends of Bob's at his country club. He's listening. And we got to get rid of that guy. Get rid of And that would happen all the time that first year. And... Uh, and then they would call Bob and say, you know what, he's, I'm never listening to him. I'm never watching him again, Bob. And then they'd call back three days later, and Bob would say to me, this guy called and said he won't listen to you ever or watch you ever again. And he just quoted four more things you said <laughs> on the news yesterday, both at 6 and 11. So obviously they're watching, mm-hmm. even though they hate your guts or they say they do. And it it succeeded. And Well, you had a great team there at Channel 8. Wasn't oh, it my Michael gosh. Tuck and Michael Tuck and Allison Ross and... and, uh, and uh, Clark. Frank Anthony? No, not Frank Anthony. Frank Frank was at uh, 1090. And uh, Clark, uh, Clark Anthony. Clark Anthony. Clark Anthony, doing yes. the weather. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen Clark in like, gosh, 30 years. And, and Mike, of course, it, it just passed away. It was, it was, and it wasn't just the anchors. Jim Holzman, who I talk about in this book, was the news director who was amazing. And he got it way before I did and way before the CEO did because Bob Myers, the CEO, would come into Jim and say, you know, he's out there kind of bumbling around and then just talking conversationally. He's not reading his script. And it, it's kind of odd. Yeah, I've never seen it before. I don't like it. And so this is when the, my first year was coming up when they could fire me after the first year. And Jim would tell me these things. Don't, 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 don't worry. Don't change. Keep doing it. I had his support. And when, when I said something on the air that made people crazy and blow up the switchboard, he thought they're watching, mm-hmm. and I know they're going to watch again, just like they do with Cosell. I hate that Cosell. Hate that Cosell. <laughs> and I wasn't planning to do a mini Cosell thing. I never did that in Oklahoma City. I wasn't going to do that. But I would walk past it when it started to get into that rhythm of they're calling, talking about. He said this and that. Obviously, they're watching. I'd walk past his office to go to the set to do the sports, and he yelled at me, "Ted, what?" Get out there and piss him off today. <laughs> yeah. So it became a thing where he knew exactly what I was doing, not intentionally, because like I said, I ain't that smart. But it was working based on what their marketing research showed. And it was uh, it was wonderful. There was a group in Pittsburgh in an old, at a bar in Pittsburgh that hated Cosell so much that they would have a, a drawing and they would draw straws. And the guy who won brought a brick to the Monday night football game, to the bar, mm-hmm. and they would watch it on an old black and white TV, and then they'd have another big one that they'd actually watch the game on. But they would start it, everybody gather around chanting, chanting something about Cosell that sounds like a fire truck, but <laughs> that's not what they were saying. Right. And then as soon as Howard would come on, say, hello, Oregon, this is Howard Cosell, mm-hmm. and they would, the guy would wind up and smash the crap out of that old television. They would get the old black and white they would buy for that purpose, and they would cheer and yell and toast each other. Mm-hmm. This was hate. This was hate. Oh, yeah. And I did get some of that, if not a lot of that. And thank God I was able to go out there and do it without thinking, oh, gosh, pull a bet Midler, you know. Mm-hmm. Where is he? He's home. He won't leave the house. <laughs> well, it, it, you were you always stirred it up. You show the hockey fights, exactly. you know, and it was your Padres or See, my that's, Padres. That when, early on, I didn't know what what was happening, what mm-hmm. what I was doing. I was just doing it mm-hmm. with the ad lib situation that I had practiced in Hartford in Oklahoma City before I got here. And did in Philadelphia. But in Philadelphia, I mean, come on. Come on. 
And it was just brutal, just brutal. These people in Philadelphia, it's, I don't know what the order is of God, country, sports, but sports may be above God, maybe above country. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so important to them. And they hated me, of course. And I would tell the CEO when they wanted me to come to Philadelphia, why? Your sports fans are known for, you know, going down to the airport and booing bad landings as, as uh, what's the com- comedian David uh, Sorry. David Brenner? David Brenner. Thank yeah. you. See, this is what's happening with the, the shrinking brain, the old, el, the old elderly, the shrinking brain. I used to be able to do, do all that. Now I'll be doing an Aztec football basketball game, and I'll think of some player, and literally, if I don't write it down, it's gone in five seconds. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's new. It's really new. And uh, But that was the deal. But after I knew what was happening from that, then... I would intentionally piss them off because <laughs> I didn't. I hate racing. I think it's just round and round and round. And I would say, racing is stupid. You want cars? You want cars? And I would arrange for the director to shoot the live camera up on eight oh five, and so they show the big traffic jam, whatever during rush hour during mm-hmm. the five o'clock news. And I put it on for like one thousand one, one thousand two, one thousand three. Okay, come back out to me. Okay, you got cars? There, you got cars. We're done with racing for the week. And it would just piss them off so much. And then the hockey highlights. Also, mm-hmm. and every time would be fighting, and sometimes I come back and say, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm sorry. I, I didn't recognize the, the the two players in the fight." Moron number one was on the left side. Moron number two was on the right side. Now I'd move <laughs> on to something else, and the hockey people would just—it's <laughs> unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It was so much fun. Hey, can we take a couple of comments from the uh, live audience? Anytime. All right, let's take a look and That'll see. That'll shut me up, here. which is. Good. We'll be here all night. We'll be here all night. Well, let's see if we can get it here. Yeah, here in the community forum. And uh, this is uh, from Larry Schuler. He says, Uncle Teddy rocks. Most passionate and hardest working sports broadcaster in San Diego sports history. He also tells it like it is. And if the team is having an off night, he lets you know about it and doesn't sugarcoat it like many other announcers. I appreciate that very much because that, again, was intentional. I really believed in that. Back when I was broadcasting, you know, Jerry would say we... You know, we, we just need a couple of, uh, you know, a bloop and a blast here. We can come back. Jerry, it's 19 to 1. What are you talking about? <laughs> but he was so positive. I would always do that. And I thought you lost your credibility. I mean, when you have credibility and you say this, this shortstop they got is really terrific, you have that credibility. But if you're acting like, you know, it's 19 to 1, but there's still a chance. There's still a chance. <laughs> and I would never say we. I would never say we. Marty Brenneman taught me that, the the 40-year voice of the Cincinnati Reds, a wonderful man with great courage who didn't believe in, as I did, didn't believe in socializing with the players. My loyalty, Marty told me, it's to the audience. You do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that. And and he would get a lot of crap. One of the players, I forget, it was a pitcher. I'm so sorry. I forgot who it was. But Marty had said, we— on the air, which he don't normally didn't do. The guy comes up to him in the, in the clubhouse after the game. Hey, who the hell do you play for? Ah. What position do you play? What's mm-hmm. this we stuff? <laughs> and I believe in that. We is for the fans, mm-hmm. Padre fans, not me as a broadcaster. Me now as an ambassador promoting my club, absolutely, and, and loving that. But as a broadcaster, it wasn't me to say we. I ain't playing. And we is is the, the, the team, is the Padres, and it's the it's the fans' teams and the owners' teams and whatever. And so the same thing happened. And, and Marty was wonderful. He got on Junior Griffey. Junior Griffey jogged to first base, which he would occasionally do. And Marty just buried him. Just buried him. Look at that. Look at that. Junior, you know, for $10 million, it ain't that hard to run 90 feet. And I always did that. I always did that with players for a long time. They hated me for a long time because mm-hmm. nobody had done that. You know, And most broadcasters don't do it. But that I truly believed in. That I truly believed in. 
So Griffey gets in his face, Marty tells me, the next day in the clubhouse and says, hey, who the hell are you to this and that and this and that? And Marty said, Junior, I was here before you got here. I'll be here after you're gone. (laughs) That's when you got backing from management and ownership that you're Marty Brenneman and the fans love you as much, maybe more, than they love a guy who hits a home run and wins the ball game for them. And Marty retired uh, a few years back. They were begging him to stay, which is not normally the case with any broadcaster. Mm -hmm. But Marty Brenneman is one of those guys that I put up there on the pedestal of uh, being an objective broadcaster and terrific at play-by-play at the same time. Yeah, a great guy. Oh, you know, I mean, just one of the all-time best. You got a few more here. Yeah. Let's take a look. This is uh, from Mike Furlano. He says, I'm a San Diego transplant, but Ted's voice still means San Diego sports to me. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Like I said, these things that I never thought about, hey, if I can be here long enough, maybe people will like me. (laughs) (laughs) And I used to say that to John Moores when John owned the club and I'd get introduced, you know, before one of those ceremonies. And there was a mixture even then of cheers and boos at my own ballpark at at Pat Gore and and Jack Murphy. And I said to John one day, does the statute of limitations on my television? television work ever run out? Will I ever be just, just, yeah, we all like him. And he said, no. (laughs) And that's just the way it is. So, but that's okay. I did it the way I did it. I hate to sound like Frank Sinatra. I did it my way, but it worked out and it was so much fun. And I I never dreamed of being successful like that. Never dreamed of being, and I wish my father was alive to see it. But you know what, John, I will bet you he would never say, congratulations. Really? You did a hell of a job. And I'll give you an example of that. I interviewed Alex Spanos, Mm. the Charger owner at the time, who's now gone. And Alex told me when uh, we were talking before we started the interview about my father and his father, similar sorts of things. And Alex worked at the family bakery in Stockton. And he went out and told his dad, I'm going out on my own. I'm going out on my own. And his father said, you, what are you going to do? Same thing. Mm. No discernible talent. Mm. And what are you going to do? And uh, Alex said, I'll, I'll succeed. And his father says, you'll be back. You'll be back, meaning to the family bakery. You'll wow. come crawling back. So Alex goes out and he starts selling lunch to the migrants in the field up there in, in the San Joaquin Valley mm-hmm. and sells them bologna sandwiches. Then someone says, Alex, they really would like, you know, some Mexican food. Okay. He does that. Then he goes to the government. This, these, these are genius brains mm-hmm. in American business. It's not just in football, not just with the Chargers then. This is what I love about American businessmen. They're just amazing. Just able to take no for an answer. Not a chance. Not a chance. He goes to the government. There's these barracks out there from World War II abandoned. And he gets them and he asks the government, will you, will you uh, rent them to me? Yeah, we'll give them to you for a dollar a year. We don't give a damn about these barracks. And then he houses these guys and charges them for that mm-hmm. and takes the money and buys some land, buys some property, mm-hmm. and on and on and on and on and on until he buys the San Diego Chargers. Nice. And then buys a private jet. If you fly into this day to the Stockton Airport, you'll see the A.G. Spanos Flight Center with mm-hmm. all their planes in there. And the great success. So Alex tells me, I'm going to be, I don't think it's knighted, but I'm getting some big time award from the premier of Greece or prime minister, whichever they call them. And this is a Greek family that really has pride. And mm-hmm. all the kids mm-hmm. went to Greek Orthodox school. They had to speak Greek, no matter who you were, including Dino. And uh, so he, unbeknownst to his dad, his best friend now is Bob Hope. 
Hmm. Alex Matos and Bob Hope have been a bunch of uh, banquets together, and and obviously they want Alex money to sponsor these things, and Bob's the the, uh, the MC and or entertainment, whichever, and they become very close. They do a soft shoe. They do a soft shoe routine. They work on together, and Alex really? is so proud of it, and they put it on tape, and Alex loves it. So they invite Bob Hope and Dolores to come to Greece with. Alex and Faye, his wife, and all the children, and his father, and his and his mother, his, his mother, and uh, they're going to go to Greece to see his son get this incredible award in Greece that he worships so much in the Greek government. Alex, did he ever say, congratulations, I'm so proud of you? Mm. Hell no. That's what you're dealing with with fathers like that. It's the old, Burt Reynolds always said, as a Southern guy. Back in the South, you're not a, not a man until your father says you are. Ah. My father never told me I'm a man and, wow. never, and never will. And Alex has never did the same thing. And he didn't have to go crawling back to the bakery. He could buy a national chain of bakeries if you wanted to. <laughs> and never was it, son, you really surprised me. One hell of a job. You're yeah. a billionaire now. You own a football team. You're the biggest builder of apartments in the United States of America, the AG Spanos Company, headquartered in Tampa and Las Vegas. Wow. Wow, you're amazing. Not a word till the time of his father's passing. Really? That's it. Wow. That's it. So you find out when you have this kind of a thing, as, as you do, Jerry Lewis was the same way. I'm not name dropping, I swear. <laughs> I swear. That's the worst insult. But when you're in this business and you're so thrilled that you meet these celebrities, like I said, because only nothing because of you, but the, the business that you're in. And uh, so for me, it's been like Wally, like Wally Shira, who was in National Santa Fe, close to me, and, and so many others like that. And, uh, uh-oh, it just went, oh, help me, John. It just flew out of my mind. The whole thing just flew out of my mind, what we were talking about. <laughs> oh, no, I hate this so much. I hate this so much. Let's, let's go to another question here oh, from no, the audience. Oh, no, I know. I got to finish it. What no. was I talking about? By Burt Reynolds, and you're not a boy. That, yeah. And it just, gosh darn it. The aging mind is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> it really is. And this is happening to me more and more. My, my brother, who's two years older, is really having a hard time. Mm-hmm. And I'm very worried and scared, but I've had a great life. And uh, you know what I want? Hmm. The Native Americans are so smart. They always were. They communed with the land, and, mm-hmm. and they didn't waste the land. And, and they you know killed what they had to eat, not what just for sport. They didn't do that. And they always had, I've read about them so much because there's so much influence here. And I was a spokesman for Saquon, did their radio for a long time. And I got into reading all about the, the Kumeye Nation and so forth. And Native Americans always say, he died a good death. Even, mm. even if you see the, the movies where they made him look you know, like, they, like they were stealing the country from the, the white people instead of the other way around mm-hmm. and made the Indians look like the bad guys. Please, please. <laughs> and uh, John Wayne killing a few more. <laughs> few more. And, and he died in battle. He died a good death, a proud death. Mm-hmm. And I, I've taken that as in, that's for me. None of this, please God, ALS or, or dementia or Alzheimer's or some, a fire or a plane crash or all these things. If you can just go night-night and not wake up or suddenly you have something and you're gone, that's what the Native Americans believe in, a good death. You're very blessed to have a good death. And I don't mean to be morbid here in talking about this, but the life that I've had so surprisingly with seven children and four grandchildren I would die for tomorrow as well as those children, I just want a good death. That's, that's, that's all I care about. I don't think about it that much. I don't talk mm-hmm. about it. But if I get it, then I've had the great life and a good death. 
And that's terrific. That's the most you can ask for. Not lingering in tremendous pain and leaving a $700,000 bill at the hospital for your kids to have to be paying and be a burden to them. That's a great blessing. I have no idea where I was thinking about before that, but <laughs> darn it. Well, here's a, here's a good question from the audience. It would have so interesting, too. <laughs> this is a good transitional uh, question. Here. And this is from Kim Reese. It says, Teddy, what do you consider your greatest accomplishment? Wow. I've never been asked that. Really? 75 years old. Never been asked that. That's Kim Reese. And, uh, and, I would, and I would say raising terrific children, seven of them, six boys and a girl. But because of the divorce thing, which I, I joked about, big mistake. I know the biggest mistake I made was talking about divorce and child support and alimony and thinking that I was so big at Channel 8 that I could do like Johnny Carson did and do his alimony jokes on the, car, on the Carson show. No, 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 no. I'm talking to families here. I'm talking to Padre families and Aztec families and Charger families back then. And that's not funny. Of course enough, I never thought it was funny, but I thought some of the things that happened were funny. No. So my biggest regret is ever bringing that up on a radio show. I never did it on television, like Carson. But I, I would talk about it during my talk shows. You got to talk about something, right? Mm-hmm. You, you just can't just sit there like Carl Weathers. It's, it's too silent. <laughs> got to right? have an answer. You got to have an answer. So my biggest regret would be uh, talking about divorce and child support. And even I think several of my older children hold that against me. I know they do. Because I, I was saying things like that that they extrapolated to be negative about their mom. Unheard of. No excuse. Shame on me. I was even younger and more stupid then. But in terms of my biggest accomplishment, it would be that they are, and I was going to say that I raised them, but I, I didn't really. I had them on weekends and things like that. I was uncle, dad, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Their mothers did a wonderful job. So I can't say it's the raising of my children, but I need to think about that. It's a great question. Thank you. I, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe I don't have a greatest accomplishment. I really don't know. Well, you got a long list of really good ones. So you've got a lot to work from. So I hope so. I hope so. But I never thought of that. I, I've never thought or remember being asked that of my greatest accomplishment. Because in this business, you know, broadcasting where it's like, wow, you know, like I said, they go out marketing research and they show your picture, you know, the Channel 8 marketing company, whatever that works for them, shows the picture of, of me and Mike Tuck and Allison Ross. Do you know who this is? And God forbid a big majority says, no, you're mm. gone. Mm. You're gone. So all of that. And then do you know this person? Yes. Do you like this person? No. That's <laughs> against you too. And mm. a lot of other things, you know, you could I don't like the, I don't like his looks. I don't like this. I don't like that. And there's so much. I think my greatest accomplishment might have been to be different, doing the sports on television different. Not so much talk shows. A lot of guys did different talk shows. But I think the sports thing, because uh, I have I have guys in national media who I meet and say, you know, I was in San Diego and I watched you, and God, it was bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Al Bernstein. Al Bernstein was the big the boxing guy yeah. for ESPN, and Al. I, I met Al. And was it a phone conversation? I can't remember. He said, you know, I watched you on, on TV sports there, and you're the first guy I ever saw who was conversational and wasn't g- giving it that boom, 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 and it's sports today. Da, 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 da. And I, I, thought, I thought you were so bizarre, but I, I got to like it as I came to San Diego for fights and whatever. And uh, and guys like that, I'm trying to think of a couple of other guys, national guys who had done that. It just, of course, flew right out of my mind. Bob Ryan, Bob Ryan of the Boston mm-hmm. Globe and ESPN told me that. I really, really, uh, really like Keith Hernandez, the former Met and Cardinal who mm-hmm. does the Mets broadcasting, came into the booth one day and said, you know, I, I flew into L.A. when the club came here, the Mets, and I was listening to you on the way down. God, you're terrific. That sort of stuff. I, I, 
find that for someone who's different and some are going to hate it and some are going to love it, maybe my biggest accomplishment was surviving in trying to do something that hadn't been done in the Hartford market or the Philadelphia market where I failed or the San Diego market where I think I succeeded. Maybe that's the biggest accomplishment, just survival when you're not doing it the way everybody else does it. Well, it seemed like in the beginning, everyone was so like in shock, like who is this guy? What the hell is this? Exactly. And, And then over time, the audience really warmed up to you, you know, and, and some people used to say it's Ted Leitner's like an acquired taste, but, but that it was beca- the great line by Larry Lucchino. Okay. Ted is like anchovies. He's an acquired taste. <laughs> <laughs> but it went from, you know, being like a, an aggravation kind of antagonistic right. to legit love. I mean, there's people that just feel so strongly about you. And you know why that happened? That did not happen by anything that I softened on channel eight. I didn't. That happened. We already talked about him. Colonel Gerald Francis Coleman. Mm -hmm. That's why. It's the old, hey, if Jerry thinks he's okay, if Uncle Jerry thinks he's okay, then he's okay. And I believe that 35 years did end some of that stature limitations on that big mouth. He said this, he said that. (laughs) And he did that commentary about whatever. And and some of it was really, I tell you what, when Shaq Harris was the backup quarterback to Dan Fouts and I did a commentary, you know why Shaq won't get a job? He's black. Mm. No one no one had said things like that mm. in this community. Not that I'm a big mm-hmm. tough guy or whatever or braver. Nobody ever did commentary. It was a bunch of old radio guys who got TV jobs, and uh, that's what they did. And, and they wouldn't do a commentary in a million years, and they didn't have a management that would let them like I did with the late Bob Myers and Jim Holtzman and so forth. Mm-hmm. I had that, and I could do that. <coughs> Excuse me. But some of that stuff would make people think, who the— you believe what that's Shaq? He's calling us a racist that we boo Shaq mm-hmm. Harris because he's black. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> See, you can't resist talking to the camera now. I know. I love you, it. Even when we're in a podcast. It, John, I miss it so much <laughs> that when I turn to your, your monitor here and I can do that old, uh, hey, listen, this is really a bunch of beer. I, I miss it so much. I was so lucky to have it a few weeks or months shy of 25 years at Channel 8. And... Uh, I'm just, like I said, luckiest guy I know. Awesome. So I, I have one final question. For yes, you. yes. And Ken, this has been wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I want to circle back to the Padres. And one of my favorite baseball players of all time is Ricky Henderson. Of course. Because not only a Hall of Famer, greatest leadoff hitter of all time. <laughs> that but, indeed. But just, I love when Ricky talks in the third person. Like, Ricky <laughs> loves it when Ricky, I mean, it, the guy's fantastic. He's to so quote, unintentionally to quote funny. My dear Departed friend, Tony Gwynn. Ted, <laughs> he's the unintentionally funniest man that ever lived. Yes. Because Tony had the locker in, in Jack Murphy right next to him. Oh, perfect. And you could hear Tony's laugh just <laughs> ringing through. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Ricky just said, and he didn't mean it. He, it, it, was, just, it was just wonderful. Just wonderful. I'll give you an example. Uh, Steve Finley. Ricky's on the team. The guy with the most tenure with the ball club sits in the first seat when you first come on the bus on the aisle, first mm-hmm. row, by himself. He gets that seat. He's the most tenured guy on the ball club. So Ricky comes on. I forget where we were. And, and uh, Finns is in that first, first seat. And Ricky says, well, hey, Finns, what, how come you're sitting there? And, and Steve says, I've got tenure. And, and Ricky says, i got 16 year. <laughs> <laughs> Ricky, what was it like when you when you're playing for the Mets? Where'd you live? I had, a, I had an apartment in Manhattan. You could open my drapes and see the entire state building. 
<laughs> the entire, entire playbook. I say, I say, just a, just wonderful, wonderful. Never knew his teammates' names for the most part. And Ryan Klesko told me he's on third base. No, Ricky's at third base, right? And Ryan's batting, and he's yelling, T, T, knock me in. And Rhino's thinking, who the hell is T? <laughs> He doesn't think I'm Tony, who we call T, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And 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 uh, Tim Flanner is a third base coach. Flanner, does he know? The, does he know the signs? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> He's just Ricky playing ball, man. Like he says, I'm just Ricky playing, Ricky being Ricky, and playing ball so brilliantly, so brilliantly. And and the signs were this: Flan would call time, and he'd walk down and meet him about halfway to home plate, and in his ear. Bunt, <laughs> hit and run, which he really wouldn't do very often with a guy like like, like Ricky with his yeah. power. I mean, the most leadoff home runs ever in baseball history. And you know what impressed me the most about Ricky? And I saw him on a, on a flight after he left the Padres. And I know he didn't reckon, rec- he recognized me, but he didn't know my name. And that was okay. I understand he didn't know anybody's name. I said, what are you doing, man? Well, I'm, I'm flying the back up. I was going up to the Bay Area to do a game. I asked that game, and he said, I'm, I'm uh, auditing a class. And I thought, sheesh, yeah. auditing a, for what? And it was the year that Ricky was going in that summer to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Mm. And he was auditing an English and speech class so he could give a really good presentation or a better presentation and a good speech. Now, that's a professional who gets ready to play a ball game. Mm. But those guys, those guys, they don't just act professional and do their work and, and, as they say, get it all, get all your work in and be dedicated. Ricky was dedicated to that, too. I'm not going to go up there and say goofy stuff and what well, makes people laugh. I'm going to give a hell. And he did. He gave a terrific speech. And I thought, I am so proud to know this man. Because I'll tell you what, if I had a large corporation, wherever I was, I would hire ex-athletes. You get a man like that or a woman like that now in these days, focused on the task, mm-hmm. booed by 40,000 people in their office because they had a bad day, mm-hmm. will come back and say, that's all right, I'll get them next time. And have that kind of mental toughness. And I believe baseball, because of a game of failure that it is and so difficult to hit and so forth, I think the baseball players I've been privileged to be around have taught me so much about mental toughness. Bob Scanlon, who I did about four or five years with in in the radio booth, a former pitcher, who was cut by this team, cut by that team, kept coming back, kept coming back, became the Cubs closer, kept coming back, kept coming back. And you couldn't you couldn't discourage him. You couldn't discourage him. I've learned more about mental toughness from Bob as anybody. People see Jose Altuve in, in, with the Astros at the, in, in, the, in the playoffs. He went to a tryout in his teens in, in Venezuela, and they looked at him at five foot six and sent him home. They sent <laughs> yeah, Altuve yeah, home. Yeah. And he came the next day, changed his name, came in, and made that Venezuelan team and became a multi-million dollar all-star fantastic player for the Houston Astros because he would not take no for an answer. That's the physical and mental toughness of athletes. And to be around them, I've learned more from them. They've learned nothing from me. They are absolutely something, whether it's Ken Caminetti or Tony Gwynn or Greg Vaughn, all these guys who I'm privileged to know. It's remarkable. They are remarkable. I would hire every ex-athlete and ex-military, same thing. Mm -hmm. They're the same thing. Task. This is my job. I went to Iraq. Your last question, huh? For like three, I got all night. For like three shows, I go to Iraq with Doug Manchester and John Lynch to do a morning radio show for the Marines when they took over Saddam Hussein's Air Force Base in Al-Ambar province in, in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And I see these Marines, and I talk to this Marine. He's up on his post. 
And he says, Ted, I watch, I used to watch you all the time on Channel A. Can I take a picture with you? I said, sure. Come on down. No, sir, I can't. Nobody else is around, just him and me. Mm-hmm. No, no, come on down. We'll take the picture. You get right back up. No, sir, I cannot leave my post. I'm so impressed by people like that. Mm. So impressed by the Marines, by this military town of ours and Jerry's connection to the Marines. It was amazing. And I saw that everywhere I went, that sort of discipline. And we're leaving from Kuwait. And there's a big high alert of an, of, of, of an invasion of Kuwait by the lunatics. And uh, we're in a bus and these Marines come on with their with their M16s or whatever else they had. And they're squatting down. One of them is squatting right next to us. And uh, if he shaves, it's a miracle. This guy's <laughs> maybe 18, never shaved in his life. Right. And I said, what's going on? We have a. We have uh, IT, whatever, and intelligence about, uh, we have intel about this attack coming here. So we'll be, we'll, we'll, I said, attack? Sheesh. <laughs> and he says, no, don't worry, sir. We'll be right here. We'll take care of business. And I thought, jeez, this 18-year-old kid is taking care of me. And that's what they're doing right now all across the world in hotspots. Those 18-year-old men and women are taking care of us. And if they die, they die. That's part of their job description. And I've had the same 45 years in San Diego in a military town to see them, to learn from them. And isn't it great how oh. the Padres have really incorporated oh the military on Sundays? The I mean, Padres were the first to do this. I see now I go <laughs> watch our Mets game on TV. They're wearing camouflage uniforms. wonder where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was my Padres who started that and honoring the military and bringing them in and sitting them out in the stands for free on, on uh, Sunday ball games and, and doing the Marine hymn and becoming a big part of Padre tradition. They've been so involved, so involved. And uh, Jack Ench was their military liaison. I've, I've learned to call Jack friend. And uh, Jack was amazing. Had a missing thumb when they shot him down over Hanoi hmm. and uh, lost his thumb. And the best part was he was, he was flying his plane, F4 Phantom. I'm not sure about that, but uh, he was on the Midway. He was on the Midway, which is now the museum here, but it was hot. It was in battle then. And mm-hmm. when you leave, you got to sign out on the logbook. And then when you come in and you have your mission accomplished, you sign in on the logbook. Mm-hmm. Jack never signed in on the logbook. He signed out. He got shot down. He spent years in a, in a Hanoi prison and then was released when they had the big release. And then Jack went on his own to the Midway Museum, found the logbook, and signed in. Mission oh, accomplished. Beautiful. I get to be around men like that because I'm in sports and the military and the Padres. You can't be any prouder. You can't be any prouder of them. Unbelievable. That's it. That's it. That's man. what I've gotten uh, exposed to, as, 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 as not just the athletes and their toughness and their dedication, but to all of that. And like I said, if I'm a big uh, entrepreneur here, I'm hiring ex-jocks and ex-military. They get the task done. They are totally dedicated. It's yes, sir, no, sir. And they are, as, as David Halberstam said, the best and brightest. Right on. Best of the best, right? That's what makes America great. That's what I, we have them. Yeah. They are. They're absolutely amazing. Well, here, here's your book, TED Talks. Oh, I think I'll read that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's on, on Amazon, and uh, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of different places online where it can be ordered, but I, I love this, really. I appreciate it. I mean, because it's easy reading. It's a lot of short stories. A lot of pictures. A lot of pictures. <laughs> big, big print. Big print, And yeah. you, can, you can use crayon to connect yeah. some of the stuff, sure. No, but it's a fun read. Thank you. I mean, it really is. I mean, I just feel like I'm kind of hanging out in the booth with you and Jerry, you know. That's, or, that's the ultimate compliment. You know, exactly so right. It's terrific. So, Ted, thanks for coming. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it very much. 
These yeah, podcasts make me think like I'm really, really, really still in broadcasting, still working <laughs> every day, which I'm not, mm-hmm. and which that's fine, having had that much work for so long. It's wonderful. Simply wonderful. And I got to look at the camera just like that. Camera's over here, right? Yeah. It's ah. that one right there, I think. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving me my living and my career. Ted, thanks again. You bet. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.